0: Hi, everyone. It's Shay. Today, I want to introduce you to another podcast I think you'll like. It's called Black and Blue Behind the Badge. And in this new limited series hosted by Saren Jones, she shares the story of Michael Morrison. When he joined the police force, the badge was his future, his ambition, his way out of poverty. It was his American dream. But once he put on the uniform, the badge meant something very different. Inside the force, he faced racism and violence and on the streets. He was surrounded by hostility. Michael was stuck in the middle between being black and being a police officer. In Black and Blue Behind the Badge, Michael and others like him finally get to tell their story. A story that's made them question everything they thought they knew about justice, community, and ultimately what it means to be both black and blue. You can find Black and Blue Behind the Badge wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hope you enjoy this
1: sneak peek.
2: Warning. This episode contains violence, racist language, and scenes that some listeners may find distressing.
3: March 2003, this occurred. There's 2,000 students in there, so there's no such thing as a quiet lunch at that school.
2: This is Michael T. Morrison, or Officer Mike. He's standing in his usual corner in the cafeteria at Columbia High School in New Jersey. It feels like just another day on the job.
3: Like, you might have the jocks sit together, the science kids sit together, the cheerleaders sit together, you know, different nationalities, the the Haitians sit together, the Blacks sit together.
2: Now, at this point, Michael has been a police officer for 15 years. He sees himself as a bridge between Black residents and the police. But that's about to change.
3: This particular group actually, they were Haitian-American. The principal was several feet away from them, but I was in earshot of what was occurring, of her telling them to sit down and them not listening to her.
2: Things escalate quickly.
3: And so on this particular day, one kid got upset, yelling, you know, like, don't be talking to me or you ain't telling me what to do, his arms going up and down, his, his arms flailing
2: like that. Mike didn't know it at the time, but for months, these Black students have been feeling discriminated against.
3: In my head, I was like, what is going on with this kid? He went running toward the principal.
2: A Black officer caught between a Black kid and a white principal. He felt he had no choice.
3: So I grabbed him. I gave him the bear hug just to close his arms together, just to stop his arms from flailing. And so in that bear hug, we fell to the ground. The next day, it was an uproar. It was minority parent groups upset with me, marching in front of the school against me, claiming that you know, I beat the young man up in, in, in the cafeteria. It was out of control. I was charged with police brutality
2: From Curious Cast and Blanchard House, I'm Saren Jones, and this is Black and Blue, Behind the Badge. Episode one, Catching Hell. It was August 2012 and I'd moved to a town called Brookville in New York. I was 18 and starting a new life as a student athlete at Long Island University. I was on the women's swim team. As a Black girl from South Wales, where there were hardly any Black people, arriving in New York, I expected to find a great melting pot. But it wasn't like that. In fact, I spent a long time trying to figure out what it meant to be Black in America. And then one day, On July 17th, 2014, something happened. Eric Garner, an unarmed black man, was put in a chokehold and pinned down by four cops in Staten Island. His crime? They said he was selling loose untaxed cigarettes. He said he wasn't, but within three minutes, he was unconscious. An hour later, he was dead. There was outrage. Police and many New Yorkers have been at odds since a grand jury refused to indict any officer in Garner's death. The Black Lives Matter movement blew up, unapologetically. The mood was changing. I was seeing it, sensing it. New York was now restless to me, on edge. It seemed stories of police brutality involving African-Americans were everywhere. In a matter of seconds, the 12-year-old boy in this video will be fatally shot.
1: And now new video shows he lay wounded on the ground for at least four minutes before getting any medical attention. He's running this way. He turns his body towards this way. Hands in the air, being compliant. He gets shot in his face and chest.
2: The country was burning.
1: America, deal with how we going to police in the United States.
2: It was anarchy in the St. Louis suburb of Ferguson last night.
1: Storefront smashed.
2: And in the midst of the outrage, I realized something was missing. I wanted to hear a voice that we hadn't heard and still haven't heard. A story that wasn't being told. And I kept wondering, where are all the Black police officers? I became obsessed with this question and this perspective, which just seemed invisible. I wanted to find Black police officers and get answers. Did these deaths keep them up at night, or was it just another day on the job? And how could they look their white colleagues in the eye and be sure, like really sure, that they wouldn't kill an unarmed brother or sister that day? I had so many questions. I just wanted to know if they genuinely believed that they could make change, or if deep down they thought they were actually just another cog in that massive machine called law enforcement. So, years passed. I still couldn't believe I hadn't heard that voice. I graduated, then I became a journalist, and suddenly I had a chance to tell that story. I started trying to find voices of black police officers who were grappling with the questions that consumed me. But in the middle of my reporting, devastating but familiar news broke.
0: The death of Tyree Nichols, a black man from Tennessee at the hands of
3: Memphis police officers, sparked outrage and, of course, a lot of sorrow.
1: After the police body cam video of the brutal beating of Tyree Nichols went public, calls are growing louder for Congress to take action. I feel like that we have to stand up for injustice and we have to have police reform. This cannot keep happening.
2: Another unarmed black man killed by police. But this time, the officers involved were also Black. It was horrific. Horrific doesn't even cover it. And it complicated my story, but it also made telling it so much more crucial. The stories of Black officers could no longer be ignored, nor could their complicated place in Black American life. And this is that story. It's a story which starts in a suburb of New Jersey called East Orange, speaking to a retired Black officer named Mike. You heard from Mike at the start of the show.
3: I realize you cannot go against the police department. If you try to be an honest cop, you can find yourself in
2: trouble. This series is about him and some of his colleagues, a small, overlooked group of officers who walk the fine line of being pro-Black and pro-police. The ones who are often loathed by their colleagues and their own people. Who are tested to pick a side. Now, I'm not American. I don't have all the answers. But I am a black journalist and I ask a lot of questions. I want to try to understand the truth. And by the way, us Brits have our own problems. I'll tell you more about those later. But first, Mike's story. I remember the first day I met Mike in East Orange, New Jersey. Yeah? Yeah, Okay. That's me arriving at Mike's house. Mike's house is a wooden two-story. The houses around here look lived in. A little rough around the edges. It's not rich, but it's not poor either. So this is home. We knew it was yours because there's a little black police officer. (laughs) That's
3: Bobby Black.
2: Bobby Black is what you've called him? (laughs) Bobby Black. Bobby Black is a small wooden statue no bigger than a gallon of milk. He lives in Michael's front porch in the bottom left corner of the window. He's the first thing you notice when you arrive. He has a small black face and wears a navy blue uniform? And he's got it all. The hat, the jacket, the badge, and the nightstick. He's looking out at the world, unapologetically and controversially asserting his presence. And that's why we're here, to hear firsthand about the ambiguity of being Black and being a cop in America.
3: Well, first time I put on my police uniform, listen, I remember that lean, mean machine in that uniform. You know, I wanted to tailor with my uniforms, you know. Not only get the shirts tapered, I got the sleeves tapered. I got the short sleeves tapered. (laughs) So I could look sharp, yeah. But it was a proud moment. Putting a uniform was definitely a proud moment.
2: Mike is a lot of things. A dad, husband, karate teacher, preacher, mentor. But above everything, He's a police officer.
3: My work ethic came from out of poverty. This is where I grew up. This is Lucy Street. Here goes my house right here, 475. So drugs came into this area in the early 80s. So then once we got to high school, there was a choice. Go to school or hang out on the corner.
2: Mike grew up poor in the city of Newark in the 1980s. He lived through the height of the crack epidemic and witnessed firsthand the devastating effects it had on the African-American community. A significant rise in homicides, incarcerations, poverty, families torn apart, neighborhoods ravaged. Even the homecoming queen at his high school was hooked. But Mike chose school over the street corner. He was one of five kids raised by his single mom who did her best for her family bouncing between government assistance and juggling multiple jobs.
3: When my stepfather left is when you start to realize that things were getting rough, you know, like the winters started being cold. You wasn't getting clothes as regular, as we used to. The sneakers wore out. They had holes in the bottom, you know. I mean, you, you could buy clothes with holes already in them now. That's the style. When I was young, that patch was really a patch and that patch was really covering a hole that was in the jeans.
2: Mike is in his late 50s, but you'd think he was younger, thanks to his daily 5 a.m. workouts. When we grab lunch at Maplewood Diner, he's dressed in a black and white Puma track suit. He orders a bodybuilder omelette, but switches the pork sausages for turkey and turns down the toast and home fries. He's around six feet tall, 265 pounds. Now on the outside, he's built, and not the type of guy that you would want to mess with. But spending the day with him, I never felt intimidated. Far from it.
1: He's everything plus more. Calm, brief. I always see him as second to God to me. <laughs> like, after God is my father.
2: That's Chanel Morrison, Mike's daughter. She's in her thirties, Newark, born and bred.
1: He'd still text me every morning, good morning, daddy's girl. If I don't get a text from him, I'm texting him like, what's up? Like, why you ain't text me? <laughs> what you doing? <laughs> I get my messages on the daily
2: at the same time. Chanel is Mike's firstborn, And because of this, she says she was the trial and error child. She went everywhere with him. The grocery store, church, school, even the police station. She couldn't get enough of her dad, always by her side, glued at the hip.
1: Like, you can't never walk the streets anywhere without somebody knowing, like, oh, Mike Morrison. (laughs) You can put my dad in any room, anywhere, and he can just, like, blend in with anyone. You could put him in in the streets, in the hood, in the middle of the hood with gangsters and gangbangers. And he'll blend in and be cool. Put him in the church. He blending well with the church. It's like you can put him anywhere and he blends right in. <laughs> it's like amazing.
2: Growing up in the inner city, Mike didn't plan to become a police officer. As a dark-skinned black kid, the idea didn't even cross his mind. He just about managed to graduate from high school and enrolled into a local business school because it promised a loan and a job at McDonald's. After that, he became a security guard. And when the chance to become a police officer came up, being the breadwinner in his family, Mike knew what he had to do.
3: This thing was do or die for me. This police came was gonna get me out of poverty. I caught three buses for 17 weeks to get to the police academy. Yeah, the first day, we all line up and you don't know what to expect. You line up outside the police academy door and these guys come out with these drill sergeant hats on and they kick the door open and they put us in push up position and they made us do push ups on the cold ground. When we got down on push ups, we had to say, Thank you for making my mind and body healthy, sir. Then they made us run around a lot in the
2: cold, and they were calling us names. It was a 17-week process of elimination.
3: Oh, it was horrible, you know. It was horrible.
2: There were a lot of lessons for Mike, and a lot of firsts, too.
3: I wasn't ever had a gun before, you know. I remember it was in the wintertime, We we had to qualify outside in the snow. My hands were bleeding, the gun was bloody because when you load the magazine, it was um, cutting our fingers. And you gotta shoot from prone position at 50 yards. So it was a very intense experience. What I learned once I went to the police academy is how much money police officers are making It's a very good job. And these guys back then, when I became an officer in the 80s, you didn't need college. So these guys are making very good money with very good benefits without even having college degrees.
2: Now, if you look at the demographic of policing in America, people like Mike are hardly anywhere to be seen. The country's police force has always been overwhelmingly male and disproportionately white especially when Mike was starting out in the 80s. The Bureau of Justice Statistics shows that in 1987, just 7% of full-time local cops were women, which, by the way, is why you'll mostly hear from men in this show. And although nearly 12% of the US population was Black, just 9% of cops were.
3: Minorities in police work was very rare in New Jersey, very rare. You had your sprinkles, you know, here and there, but it was very rare. I think in the 90s, it really got better, but that was the beginning of these towns diversifying up here.
2: Even though there was a slight rise in the 90s, these figures have barely improved. In New Jersey today, although the state is only about 50% white, white officers make up more than two-thirds of law enforcement. And improving diversity in policing isn't just a US issue, the UK also struggles. In both the US and the UK, Black people are consistently underrepresented in law enforcement. The numbers have barely moved in 30 years. Black women are even less represented. And when you think about how police tend to be deployed, it means that most of the time, white officers will be policing Black neighborhoods and Black cops will be far outnumbered wherever they serve.
1: I feel like he wants to show the world that, like, this can be done in this form of fashion. Like, this can be done by a Black cop in a white community. This can be done by a little Black boy that came from a poor home. Just, like, showing the world, showing the community that this can be done. I wasn't the
3: fastest. I wasn't the best shoot. wasn't the best in shape. So at the end of the police academy, they gave me a motivation award, right? They called me Mr. Motivation because I used to motivate Everybody, while we're running, while we're getting beat up. So it it was really a brotherhood. It was a very good experience. Made a lot of good friends from there.
2: After 17 weeks of training, on a spring day in May 1987, Mike graduated from Essex County Police Academy and was sworn in as a New Jersey police officer. Mike's mum didn't want him to be a cop. She was a Black woman who lived through the fight for civil rights in Newark. She knew the way police officers treated Black people, and raising Black sons in the city only made her more sceptical, more distrustful. But even though his mum disapproved of him being a cop, Mike felt accomplished. He had proven his worth, and he was grateful to be graduating into the brotherhood from this institution that, to Mike, didn't seem that bad at all. Mike remembers the speech of the Essex County prosecutor that day. He said the new officers shouldn't expect to go home on weekends or make a home for the holidays anymore. It was time to work. And Mike was ready. Your attention, please. All luggage and parts must be attended at all times. Any items left removed. By- His first job was in the transit department at Newark Penn Station. Mike had no idea what he'd signed up for. He was about to get a hard lesson in the reality of policing.
3: I realized that I joined the biggest gang in America when I joined
2: Transit. It was all a long way from the police academy and the brotherhood, an ugly wake-up call.
3: Well, man, I have to be honest, man. Transit was, we was, we, we, we was rough, man. It was rough down there, you know. It was rough down
0: there, a lot of fighting, you know. Transit was a very rough place to work. So, Penn Station, Newark was a transportation hub.
2: That's Michael Sapp, one of Mike Morrison's colleagues at Transit.
0: It's in the city of Newark, downtown, and you had five sets of train tracks, you had Amtrak trains, New Jersey Transit, Port Authority trains, Greyhound bus, taxi cabs out front and back, a large homeless population. There were a lot of drug addicts lingering around. I would leave my police uniform on the
3: porch. That's how contaminated it was. I didn't even bring it into the house
0: because the stench was so bad. So it it was a constant hustle and bustle and something was always going on. There were strong-arm robberies going on, assaults.
2: Newark Penn Station is one of the busiest rail hubs in America. At the time, around 90 officers were on patrol. Every day, around 300,000 passengers would pass through. Don't fall it. was a never-ending cycle, a world of constant revolving doors with new challenges ready to add chaos to the carnage. Mike Morrison met Michael Sapp at the transit medical.
0: We had to get on a scale. And, you know, we're standing there in our underwear, waiting to weigh in, and Michael gets on a scale, and it, and it said, like, 2.15. And he's like, what? 2.15, nah, all the working out I've been doing. He said, let me take this watch off, you know, and throw this watch on the side because this watch is messing me up.
2: (laughs) They quickly became friends, becoming two of only a handful of minority officers working at the station. Mike Morrison was from inner city Newark. Mike Sapp was from the leafy suburb of Teaneck in Bergen County. They were two black men from two very different worlds.
0: Mike would elbow me and be like, man, get out of here, man. you you, one of them pretty light-skinned guys that grew up in the suburbs, man. You don't know nothing about struggling. You know, watch out, watch out. We were kind of just
2: lean on each other and cracking up laughing. But transit was a culture shock to both of them. A lot was going on all the time. And between them, they saw it all. So
0: one time I was talking to my sergeant and we were having a conversation and I turned around and I and I walked away from him. I got about 30 feet away and I heard all this yelling and I turned back around and he's on the floor with a guy wrestling. So I run back and we grabbed the guy and handcuffed him. And I said, so what happened? He said, when you turned around and walked away, this guy walked up to me and just jumped me. And so we're processing the guy and we said, what was that all about? So the guy says, yeah, I got arrested by Newark police and I made a promise to myself that when I got out of jail, the first cop I saw, I was going to jump on him. And he was the first cop I saw.
2: But the hardest thing about working at Newark Penn Station wasn't actually the people. It wasn't the violence, the poverty, the addicts or the long hours. Here's a warning that Michael Sapp was given by one of his instructors at the academy the threat was much closer to home.
0: He told the class, he said, you know, 98% of the headaches that you're going to endure on this job, it's not going to be from people in the street and the general public or even the people you arrest. It's going to be from the people you work alongside, your colleagues. He was deadly accurate with that statement. From the management at Transit, I feel racism at
3: Transit is horrible. I feel trans a very, very uh, racist
0: department, especially from the bosses down there. I kind of felt like there was a, a tiger hiding in the woods and could come out at any time and kill me.
3: Captain Bober was a horrible person. He was a mean boss. White male. He had a short mustache. He kept himself in very good shape. Very good shape.
2: — Captain Joseph Bober ran the patrol division at Transit. His reputation preceded him. Even in his previous job, he'd been notorious. The rumors that reached Transit were outrageous. But even so, Morrison and Sapp weren't prepared for the reality.
0: There was one instance where I was standing next to him and a lieutenant. There was a snowplow driver that had gone by. He missed some snow. And he was making a U-turn to come back. And he says to the lieutenant, you know what's wrong with the city of Newark? There's too many working for it. And I said, oh, okay. I said, let me take my notebook out, write that down. He said, I don't give a f- what you write down.
2: Morrison and Sapp felt one thing very clearly. They felt their captain was out to make life difficult for minority officers, and especially Mike Morrison.
0: He would tell other officers, when you ride train patrol, make sure you give the n- and the s- hell. He zeroed in on Michael while Michael was there. You know, it was hell for Michael.
2: The two Mikes recall a culture that felt toxic, suffocating, insufferable. Boba would challenge officers to meet him at the back of the police station, to settle scores, man to man.
3: He would like mess with the minorities. They had a dumpster out there. So his thing was like, you want to fight me? He would invite you out to the dumpster. You know, he was a bully.
2: And one inevitable and dreaded day, Boba chose Mike.
3: You know, I was invited out to the dumpster. I was in shape. I could fight back then.
2: (laughs) Mike knew this day would come. There weren't too many minority officers for Boba to choose from. So Mike confided in Michael Sapp.
0: He said, you know, Boba challenged me to a fight out by the dumpster at police headquarters. And I said, what? I said, I don't understand. And he said, yeah, you know, he was complaining again about something that I, I did or didn't do. And he said, you know what, I'm getting tired of you, Morrison. We can go out by the dumpster and handle this like men. And and I said, and what'd you do? He said, you know, I left. I went on patrol.
2: That was the measure of his brother, Mike Morrison.
0: Here's a man that... Lifts weights at 5 a.m. every morning, dedicated with his diet. At the time, he was studying karate and always boxed. So where I'm going is he could have destroyed Boba in a physical fight, but he never allowed himself to be pushed to that.
2: Mike did all he could to stay out of trouble, to be an honest cop. But it was harder than he had ever imagined.
3: I had a friend named Michael Guess, and this guy was an actor. This guy's a professional. They took his money. And he came up to me, he said, Mike, those guys opened up my wallet. They just took my money. You know, I'm like, I told him, I said, man, you know, bad was bad. I ain't nothing I could do. I told him how to make a complaint. I said, I'm a cop.
2: Just like those are cops. And when it came to the victims of this behavior, both Sapp and Morrison say there was an undeniable pattern.
3: 99.9% of the time, it was a black person.
2: Sapp and Morrison were part of an overwhelming minority. With about 90 officers in transit, less than 10 were black or brown. According to the two mics. instances of racism were everyday occurrences, overt at times and covert at others. Mike Sapp even saw it in the way their peers would handle passengers who had just missed the last train home.
0: If A minority rider came up and said, oh, I'm I'm stuck till the morning, anywhere I can go. Yep, stand right there till 5.30 a.m. If a white person came up to certain officers, oh, right this way, and they would open the main waiting room and let them have a seat on the benched area.
2: It looked like segregation, pure and simple, and it never went down well with Mike Morrison.
3: And so then I would immediately find, you know, I would see an African-American woman down there that's possibly a businesswoman miss her train, I would put her in that waiting room too, you know, so she could be safe till her train comes in the morning. That was my first experience with, with, wow, you recognize humanity and the need for the white woman to be safe, but you don't recognize humanity and the need for this professional black woman to be in a safe environment.
2: To Morrison and Sapp, it seemed like their fellow officers thought that their badge put them beyond the reach of any kind of accountability.
0: I remember there was an officer that went off duty, and he came upstairs in his civilian clothes, and he left. And um, a few moments later, he came back in, and he's dragging a, a teenage boy young black kid, and so we all, you know, run up to the the, the off-duty cop, and he said, what's going on? You know, what do you got here? Oh, man, kid threw a snowball at my car. And so he brings the kid inside and, and throws him on the floor, and he starts slamming the kid around, punching him, kicking him, and I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute now. Wait, this is a kid. I said, get off of him. Now he's looking at me like, what? I said, listen, I said, don't you have a son this kid's age? You want somebody slamming your son around like that because he threw a snowball? Get off of him and don't touch him. Then I grabbed the kid. I said, Let's go, kid.
2: Violence, racism, corruption. It wasn't even hidden. It was proudly protected by the badge on the uniform and the flag on its sleeve. The two mics had some difficult choices to make.
0: There were thefts that occurred. There were assaults that occurred. It was common for those prisoners or suspects that were being processed to be assaulted. You were expected to take part in it, look the other way, lie for people when a suspect got injured. Let's say if I knew Officer Jones was a bad
3: cop, and Officer Jones said on the air, I'm coming in with one arrest, I would say Officer Morrison going to lunch. When they bring somebody in for arrest, I made sure that I was not in the room.
2: If you're a minority officer, there can be a double burden of suspicion. Some white citizens sense danger. Many black citizens sense betrayal. At times, you may be able to win the battles, but it's nearly impossible to win the war.
0: The moment that you do your job as a police officer, oh, come on, brother, give me a break. Oh, my man, you know, you're not gonna charge me. You're not gonna give me a ticket. And when you do your job now, oh, you're an Uncle Tom, oh, you're a traitor. I can't believe you're wearing that uniform. You're mistreating us just like the white cops. When you're a minority officer, you catch hell.
2: And hell was about to reach a whole new level. With Boba on his back, Michael Morrison was about to face the ultimate challenge, escaping what he calls the biggest gang in America before it was too late.
3: If you look at the legal definition of a gang, same language, same dress, same codes of conduct, but what makes it a gang is illegal activity. So once you are in uniform and your officer, And you're involved in legal activity that makes you a gang. I learned early on, listen, you don't run your mouth. You get in trouble if you violate the gang. If you tell on a gang member, your life is in danger. If you try to be an honest cop, you can find yourself in trouble.
2: Next time on Black and Blue.
3: I knew that if I stayed at transit... Very soon, I'll be brought up on fake charges and fired. I really had to get out of transit, like, right away.
2: But someone appears hell-bent on blocking his escape.
3: He was calling them, trying to stop me from getting that job, saying bad things about me, trying to tell them I'm a bad person, I'm I'm not going to be an asset to the police department. I crashed up cars. So he was trying to stop me from getting on the Maple Blues Department.
2: Will Mike make it out of transit? And will there be a day of reckoning? You've been listening to Black and Blue, a Blanchard House production for Curious Cast. Black and Blue is hosted, written, and produced by me, Saren Jones, script consultant, Soraya Shockley. The sound recordist is Vulcan Kizeltuk. Original music is by Daniel Lloyd Evans, Louis Nank and Toby Matamong. Sound design and mix engineering is by Toby Matamong. Voice coaching by Vicky Merrick. The managing producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan. The creative director of Blanchard House is Rosie Pye. The head of content at Blanchard House is Lawrence Grizel. The executive producers are Charlie Bell and Lawrence Grizel. For Curious Cast, the executive producers are Dile Velasquez and Chris Duncombe.